This message was presented at the GYC 2011 conference. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Father in heaven, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you that, that uh, you are willing and able to give us your Holy Spirit. And we recognize this morning that it's only by your Spirit that the church will ever be unified. And so we pray that right now you would be in this room, be with each person here. Lord, help us to hear from you and to be open to your leading and speaking to our hearts. Guide us in our discussion. May this meeting glorify you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so yesterday we, uh, we had our two hours block of seminars talking about divisions in the church. And, uh, and I think the, the general tone is that there are so many divisions, it would be a miracle if the, the Lord could unite us. And I don't think that's the case. I think, I think the Lord can unite His people, and I think He will. And, uh, and because there are differences, there will always be people who will be fighting against them and, and uh, you know, battling for the Lord, and that's important. So I hope you didn't leave here yesterday thinking that we should just ignore the differences, the theological differences, and just put them on the back burner and hope that they go away. That's not what we we're saying. But I hope uh, what you got out of it was that differences don't have to divide the church. And, uh, and if you came away with that understanding, that even though two people might disagree, they can still be united, because that's what we saw uh, in the early church yesterday. So um, if you have your Bibles, we're looking at unity in the church. Going back to Acts chapter 1, the Bible outlines several ways that the church was united. Acts chapter 1. And uh, we looked at, in probably every session, verse 14. And this is the, the famous, famous passage for unity in the church. Verse 14 of Acts chapter 1 says, These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the woman Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So here we have the Bible. The first thing the Bible says about this group of people was that they were continually, What? Continually, before prayer and supplication, they were continually what? In one accord. Okay, do you see that in the Bible? In the text? Verse 14, And they all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. So, in prayer and supplication, they were both unified. In unity, together. The Bible presents... Over and over in the book of Acts, this phrase, one accord, where it's talking about they are unified as a church. In Acts chapter 2, verse 1, it says they were all with one accord in one place. So they're not just unified in prayer, they're all unified in purpose for the Holy Spirit. And we saw, if you were here yesterday, you saw that uh, this unity was a condition for receiving the Holy Spirit. And then you go to Acts chapter 2, verse 46. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate food with gladness and simplicity of heart. So with one accord, not just in prayer, but also in what? Fellowship. 
They're not just praying together every day. They're, they're visiting house to house, ministering to each other's needs in one accord, in unity. Then you get to chapter 4, verse 24. The Bible says, So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, You are God who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. And they begin to, to pray this prayer and to quote Scripture. And when you get down to 31, And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the Word of God with boldness. You have unity and mission. They were able to pray and they prayed for, for boldness. When the Holy Spirit came on them, the, they began to preach and to proclaim the message and thousands, the Bible says multitudes were added to the church. So they're not just unified in prayer, they're not just unified in purpose or in fellowship, they're also unified in mission. This is the early church. This is what drove the message, the advent. I'm going to say the Adventist message because it's the same message. But the message of Christ's gospel forward was the unity of the church. In chapter 5, verse 12, And through the hands of the apostles many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. This might be a little more difficult to see, but they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. In general, they're here, they're preaching, they're laying their... There are people, you know the story, that are lying about how much money they said they would give. They died. Great fear comes on all the church and through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders are done and they're all with one accord in being. Every one of them together in one accord with his brother. In chapter 8, verse 6, find one accord again. The multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. Philip is, is preaching Christ. He comes down to the city, preaches Christ unto them. And they heeded his word, his doctrine, the Bible says, the things that he spoke to them about Christ, and they were in one accord. So even here in the doctrines that they presented, there was unity and agreement. Fellowship, prayer, Mission, doctrine, together. Chapter 15, verse 25. This is the last verse on the one accord text that we're going to look at. There's, uh, there's some problems in the early church that they're facing with uh, Jews and Gentiles. And so they have this council in Jerusalem. And in verse 25... They said it seemed good to us being assembled with what? You could have guessed, one accord. Being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Saul. And so they're saying that in this council they decided to take action and they were all in agreement. The administration of the church was all in agreement as far as the mission of the church and what they should do for the solution. And so they sent with one accord, with one heart, with one purpose they sent Paul and Barnabas. And so in prayer, in fellowship, in supplication, intercession, in mission, in being, in doctrine, and in administration, the church was unified as a whole. If you go back to Acts chapter 4, 
we need to define what unity is. Acts chapter 4, the Bible says that um, in light of Pentecost and multitudes being joined to the church, chapter 4, verse 32, the Bible says that now the multitudes of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that, at, that any of them of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands and houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of all the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each one as he had need. So right here, the Bible gives us just a little definition of what this unity looked like. It wasn't a synthetic unity that they were putting aside their differences or their disagreements on doctrine. They were together, the Bible says in verse 32, of one heart and one soul. And if you go over to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13, you'll notice that Paul writing to this church in Ephesus, he says that the unity consists of our faith and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's not a direct quote, so you'll have to look it up to make sure that I'm accurate. Till we all come into the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. The gift of the Spirit, of apostles, of teachers, all of the things before, are for the unification of the church. Why is Christian unity so important? Have you ever thought about unity, of why unity is important? I think if you would have asked me two or three years ago, I would have said unity probably isn't the most important thing. I'm sure that there are other things that we could classify as more important than unity. But for the early church, this was a reality and a condition for receiving the Holy Spirit. We looked at yesterday that this unity, the continuing fellowship that they had in unity, made the devil scared. And if, you, if unity is a condition for receiving the Holy Spirit, if you can create a false unity, or if you can create division, you can stop the Holy Spirit from being poured out. And that's exactly what the devil has tried to do. Jesus, in John chapter 17, go there in your Bibles, prayed for unity for the church. And there are several reasons why I think this is important because of what they tell us about God. What chapter did I say? John 17. All right, you're paying attention. John chapter 17, are you there? All right. I'm not, so give me a second. John chapter 17, verse. we'll start in verse 11. The Bible says... Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be what? One as we are. So Jesus, before he is crucified in the closing scenes of his history, he's praying for his disciples. And he prays to the God not that, that you know, they'll be vegetarians, Although, you know, we could say that's pretty important. Not these other things. He prays that they'll be one. Jesus could have prayed anything, right? He could have prayed for whatever he wanted. But Jesus knows what's important for the church. 
And so he goes to, the, to his knees and to the Father. He says, Father, I pray that this church that you have given me may be one as we are. This is not the kind of unity that exists between a husband and a wife. The oneness between God the Son and God the Father is perfect. Perfectly complete. And I think we'll spend eternity in heaven learning about what that looks like. How two different, distinct individuals can be one. How three separate, distinct beings can be one. One heart, one purpose. The Bible says, I pray that they may be one. And in verse 21, the Bible continues and Jesus' prayer continues. Starting in verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Two principles that we learn from these two verses. In verse 11, we learn that it is God only who can unify His church. God is the one who keeps His followers unified. In verse 21, we read this, and these, that they may be one, that they may be one in us, that this is the reason why, that the world may believe that you sent me. So unity between Christ's followers, between the church of Jesus, between Adventists today, let's just bring it down to application, testifies that God sent Jesus into the world to save sinners. Unity is a powerful argument that Jesus is real. Let me read you this statement from the Review and Herald, November 3, 1896. God has designed by the unity of His people to impress upon a sinful world and, to, and also to reveal the heavenly intelligence the fact that Jesus Christ has not died in vain. What do you say? Unity testifies that Jesus' death was not in vain. Christ came to this world and died to save people and the unity that we have together testifies that it was real, that it was vibrant and that you and I can have life in Jesus. Perhaps the most powerful argument that Jesus did not die in vain. Verse 21 says that they may believe that you sent me. Somehow and some way the unity that the church can have lets the world know that God is real. We like to, to quote the atheists of our time, the secularists of our time, and say, you know, these are the reasons why God can't exist. And we, we quote all kinds of things. We can quote from science. We offer classes in our seminaries about issues and origins and how creation makes sense. And I believe those are important because creation does make sense. But somehow, even beyond all of that, if the church was unified, the question of is God real wouldn't even be Address. It wouldn't need to be addressed in the Christian church because we know that. Although the science is great, and I believe creation testifies that God made the world and that Jesus came to this world to die for us, unity also testifies to the same thing. Amen? Jesus' prayer doesn't stop with these verses. He goes on in verse 22, And the glory which you have which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one. The glory of God brings unity. 
Now, we could do a study of how the glory of God equals character, but last night, if you heard the message, you know that already. Okay? And uh, you've probably got it sealed and cemented in your mind that God's glory is His character. But notice what it says, and the glory or the character that you have given me, I have given to them. God is placing His character in His people, in His church, in the disciples throughout all generations, that they may be one just as we are one. God's glory, God's character, brings unity to the church. It is His righteous character that constitutes the glory of God. And it is the same glory that Christ prays may be given to His followers upon the earth. Jesus is praying that His character would be in His disciples. That the same character of God would be impressed upon their hearts and their lives. And this character of Jesus brings unity. We looked in our first module, doesn't matter where you went, you understood what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It means to have the presence of Jesus, the power of Jesus, but also the very likeness of Jesus. And this likeness of Jesus brings unity. The Bible doesn't stop here. We're still in John chapter 17, looking at verse 23. I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and I have loved them, as you have loved me. Unity testifies to the world of God's love. Amen? It doesn't just testify to the reality of God. The unity of the church testifies to the love of God. I in them, you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Unity testifies to the love of God. Let me read this again. This request of Christ has no limit to its fullness. Speaking of John 17, the prophet is writing, the request of Christ has no limit to its fullness. The unity that we can experience between believers has no limit. This is an amazing promise. It has no limit to its fullness. He desires that his followers shall reveal to the world his spirit of unity and love. But before this unity can exist among them, there must be a genuine renovation of every heart. There must be a vital connection with God. The character must be formed after the divine similitude. The request has no limit to its fullness. But it's not a request, it's not a prayer that's just going to be answered because Jesus prayed it. We can choose to experience this oneness, this unity, if we do this genuine renovation of our hearts. If we choose to be connected with Christ, the character must be formed after the divine similitude. So if we want this unity as a church, we have to pattern our hearts and our lives after the divine character. Do you see that? We can't just have unity be unified or experience oneness by doing nothing, by ignoring issues. We need the character of Jesus. And only as we get His character will we ever 
be unified. We can have theological arguments day and night, and they will continue till the end of time. Believe me, they will. But the only way to be unified is by Christ's character. It's the only way. We said yesterday, and we only looked at one, and today we're looking at the second. Stop. Create divisions. The Holy Spirit will be stopped. Create synthetic, fake unity, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit will be stopped. This unity of faith in the Son of God that the apostles enjoyed and shared together. This was the very definition of unity in their experience. But very quickly, the devil realized that he had to change the definition. Division started springing up, and so the, the different, different people would try to solve the problems. And, uh, and if I can just take you for a moment on a brief history, this is a summary version of history. It's by no means complete. You'll have to do some research by yourself. But when you get to about AD 95, the churches in Corinth is experiencing some more problems. Corinthian, the, country, the city of Corinth was already a troubled place when Paul was writing. But they were experiencing more discord when Clement of Rome wrote to them. And he defines unity in three ways. He says that unity, the way to unity is by following three things. The guidelines of Scripture the life and teachings of Jesus, so far so good, right? The example of the apostles, Peter and Paul. And he thinks that unity is not seen as dependent on obedience, or unity is not seen as, like, he's not saying you need to follow Peter and Paul because they're the, the um, you know, the bishop or the first, the first pope. He's saying unity is from the scriptures, from the life and teaching of Jesus, and from the example that the apostles gave. But when he writes to, to the Roman church, he leaves part of that out. And so even in A.D. 95, the concept of unity of faith is still there. You can still see it. Then finally you get to Ignatius of Antioch in 115 A.D. He wrote letters dealing with schisms in the church. And he says that the way to solve these is submission to the authority of the bishop brings protection against the sin of schism. He views the bishop as we would view the pastor. So in this local congregation, they're experiencing disunity, and he says if you just listen to your pastor, you'll be unified. It's a very pragmatic approach to unity. If one person is telling you what makes the church unified, and you do that, you know... You know how it goes. Then Arrhenius of Lyons in 130 to 208 said unity was preserved by adhering to three things. The scriptures, both the Old and New Testament, apostolic tradition, the historic episcopate, the historic episcopate, excuse me. And then he, he says that the correct interpretation of scripture is in the tradition of the apostles. You see the shift that's already taking place from unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to listening to the tradition of the apostles. 
And then he said that unity, he takes it even a step further, unity by following the unbroken apostolic succession. So Peter and Paul, then through the apostles down the line, this is how you preserve unity. Through the scriptures and through apostolic tradition. Is that how you preserve unity? No, it's only a slight shift at this point. But it's the beginning of a major difference. Unity by following the unbroken apostolic tradition. And Cyprian in 258 was when he died. He, he's famous for his treatise on the unity of the church. Dealing with uh, an African, the African church who were sacrificing to other gods. This is what he is writing to, to the Christian believers who have been compromising and uh, he taught that the cornerstone, the cornerstone of unity was found in Peter to the apostles. He carried the unity views of Ignatius still further away from unity of faith, worship, and inner spirit in the direction of unity of organization. Pay attention to unity of organization. We have lights. Centering on the office of the bishop. All right, so what has unity gone from? Unity of what? Faith, unity of the knowledge of the Son of God, unity of worship, faith in the inner spirit to the direction of unity in organization. Unity centers on the bishop now and the sacraments. Where the bishop is, he says where there is the bishop, there is the church. And then he reversed what? Tertullian's statement of where the Holy Spirit is, there is the church, to where the church is, there is the Holy Spirit. You see what he's doing? Saying where, Tertullian said where the Holy Spirit is, there the church is. But then he took it around and said where the church is, there the Holy Spirit is. And then he took it a step further and said where the bishop is, there is the church. So he's centering the unity of the church around the bishop. And then Basil the Great in 300, who lived 329 to 379, said unity is a spiritual friendship nourished by humility. It's realized through the communion of the bishop in love, which is the guarantee of the presence of the church. Let me read you this one statement from the book Booner Bain. Ecumenism, Boon Bain. Unity based on the Pauline global conception of the new humanity linked together by faith in and knowledge of the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, consequently recedes in favor of a horizontal Episcopal solidarity. You see what's happened in, over the centuries for the church, right? It went from the apostles continuing in faith the knowledge of the Son of God in one accord together to a synthetic unity that exists around an office of an individual. And the individual tells you what unity is and what unity looks like. This is the history of how the devil has shaped true Christian unity, one of the prerequisites for the Holy Spirit, conditions for the Holy Spirit, to making it impossible for the Holy Spirit to unify us. Because now, today, the rest of the Christian world centers unity on an organization, not on faith. The organization is the unity. Universal unity of organization instead of universal faith in Jesus Christ. That brings unity.
he paved the way for the pyramidal papal concept of unity which would dominate Christianity for well over a thousand years. And when that unity disintegrated, the same structure emerged with the ecumenical movement that we have today. And the world is compromising their doctrines. When I say the world, I mean the world of Christianity outside Adventism. Giving up what they have, what, what they've held to since the Reformation, and going back to Rome. We talked about that yesterday. Unity of organization has emerged to be the genuine unity, while the real unity of faith has all been done away with. Today, ecumenism is leading men to forsake ideological intransigence. Do you know what that means? It means that, that religions who have held to doctrines as the foundation of their beliefs have given them up. Things that are unmovable and non-negotiable have been given up for the sake of unity. Let me ask you, if, if what you're giving up is non-negotiable, just for the sake of unity, do you get real unity? Do you? No. So they're giving up non-negotiables for what? For nothing. And that's why Adventists linking with other denominations is just wishful thinking. It can never happen. Because we cannot forsake our unique Adventist message just for the sake of a synthetic unity that doesn't even follow the biblical definition. Ecumenism exalts unity but tends to play down holiness. Relativizes truth and generalizes mission so that the evangelistic dimension begins to shrink. This is what people are giving up their doctrines for. Something that's never going to last. I think Ellen White has something remarkable to say about unity in the church. And unity, and speaking specifically about ecumenism, there's this one statement from the Great Controversy, if unity could be secured only by the compromise of truth and righteousness, then let there be difference and even war. That's a strong statement, right? Let there be difference and even war. We could go to war over our differences if it meant compromising our position. Adventism has the most unique message in the world. We are the answer, if you don't believe this, we are the answer to every problem that the world faces. You're wondering what problems the world has. You're looking at me. Adventism is the solution to the world. To the problems of differences that the rest of the world is experiencing, it's because they've given up their doctrines. Adventists can never do this because we will not compromise our doctrines, our non-negotiables for a synthetic unity. We have something even better than, than something synthetic, something man-made. We have faith in Jesus Christ. And He is the one that unites us. Amen? Why would we give that up 
to join an organization? Why are we giving it up to join an organization? It doesn't make any sense. Let there be difference and even war. Today, Adventism is unified in organization. We have an organizational structure of the church that is unified. I believe God gave us the structure. God gave us the organization. But we're not unified in thought. There are differences in Adventist thinking that keep us separated. And we use these, these differences to keep us divided. We have yet to experience the unity of faith in the Adventist church that brought about Pentecost. But I believe it can happen. I believe that God can unify us despite our cultural differences, despite whatever differences there might be. He can unify us because we have a unique understanding of Jesus Christ for these last times. We have a message that the world needs. And because Jesus Himself prayed for us to have this unity. If nothing else, Jesus has prayed for you and for me in this room today to experience the unity. And if I can pray and get my prayers answered, if you can pray and get your prayers answered, can Jesus pray and get His prayers answered? Amen. Unity is something that we can experience, not at the expense of giving up our doctrine. Unity is something that we can experience because of our faith and our knowledge of Jesus Christ. I want to read you just something that Ellen White says about unity. It says, Thousands who now reject the message of salvation would accept Christ if they could see the beauty of His character reflected in His followers. Amen? If we could have the beauty of Christ reflected in us, millions of people, thousands of people, excuse me, would accept Christ just by seeing the unity that we had. It's not people preaching. That's not what she's saying. Preaching is important. Don't get me wrong. But if people could see the beauty of the character reflected in his followers, she says thousands who have rejected the message of salvation would accept Christ. They could just see that unity. They would accept Christ. She goes on to say that then can we be surprised that the enemy, the devil, should put forth every effort in his power to create dissension, alienation, and strife in the church of God that they may not reveal to the world the glory, the character of Christ. The devil knows this, and so he's putting forth every effort to either divide the church or to create a false unity so that people will think they're unified, think the Holy Spirit is poured out, but in reality it's fake and the Holy Spirit can't be poured out. The devil is doing everything he can. And then she goes on, It is time that the people of God brought fervent love for one another into their daily experience. Amen. When the love of Jesus is abiding in the heart, it will be revealed in every action. Differences of opinion will disappear. There are differences of opinion in the Adventist church. There were differences of opinion in the early church, but it didn't prevent them from experiencing unity. 
Differences of opinion will disappear, for self will no longer seek the supremacy. Thus the church may become a bright and shining light, and heaven looking on may see that there is a body with one spirit, one hope, drawing together one great center, Christ. Amen? Unity is something that we can experience as a church today. You know how it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen by giving up what we believe. We might have differences of opinion within the Adventist church on certain things, but those things do not prevent the Holy Spirit from being poured out. And I'm thankful to the Lord for that because if we had to wait until everybody was on the same page, we would never get there. But when the Holy Spirit is poured out, He takes care of the differences. I don't know how He does it, but He does. With heaven looking on, they may see that there is a body with one spirit, one hope, drawing together to one great center, which is Christ. This is the unity that we pray for. This is the unity that we hope to experience at GYC. This is the unity that we want to see in our church, our church that has been divided over so many things. We want to see unity happen again. It has not happened since Pentecost. And if it has happened, it's been very localized. There have been great reformations throughout history where the message has gone with great power, but we have yet to see the unity that comes from Pentecost and that will come from the latter rain. And just maybe God has brought you here because He wants to unify the church. And you're sitting here listening to the seminar saying, with all of the divisions that we saw yesterday, both outside of Adventism and inside Adventism, how can we ever be unified? Well, this is the answer. We're unified by our faith in and our knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's the only way. And that's all there needs to be. Because Jesus is the center. And He needs to remain the center. I want to split up into to groups of twos or threes right now and we want to pray that the Lord would unify His church. You know what the issues are. You know what divides our churches. But somehow I believe that the Lord will use us to bring unity because we want the character of Jesus and when He gives us that character, unity comes. So pray today for unity. Pray that the Lord will pour out His Spirit on us, His church, so that we can experience the unity of faith, the unity that comes from Jesus. Is that your desire? You want that unity? You want to see that unity in our church? Just break up into groups of twos or threes. We're going to take about 15 minutes. I'll close us in prayer. And then uh, we'll take a break and, and Valmi will, will come and share again. So break up now in groups of twos or threes. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.